my my mom always told me that 100 pennies make a buck, right? We learned that as kids, it's a lot easier to make a million dollars a million ways than it is to make a million dollars one way. That's the voice of Jess Crow, owner of Crow Creek Designs, and I'm excited to talk with her right after this word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Jobber. Jobber brings people and technology together by keeping jobs on track, customers happy, and your business organized. Jobber also just recently launched a new grant program, Boost by Jobber, a program providing $100,000 to 20 small local home service businesses across the U.S. and Canada. So whether you're just starting your business or you're a well-established business, you're invited to apply for a grant. Just visit BoostByJobber.com. That's BoostByJobber.com. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Jess Crow, owner of the Alaskan-based furniture company, Crow Creek Designs. Jess is known for seamlessly blending epoxy into her pieces. From hyper-realistic fish swimming through a river to brightly colored geometric pattern tables, she makes furniture that is all her own because she puts so much of herself into each and every piece. She has grown her business alongside growing her community and both intertwined seamlessly to make her company what it is today. Follow along as we talk about mistakes made, expanding your network, pricing lessons, and the importance of embracing your weird. The environment of Alaska is just as much a part of Jess as epoxy is. With its animals, wilderness, and snow, it's been one of the biggest influences on her as a person and on her work. So that is where we start our story today. I get to say I actually was one of those kids who had to walk a mile at 60 below in order to get to the bus when I was in junior high. All these years in Alaska, and that is your your takeaway from the snow up there? I don't know. I don't really like being out in the snow. I can't have to say that I've been in a blizzard because I'm smarter than that. So it's just you and the hibernating bears, I guess, staying inside all all Alaskan winter. What are you talking about? The bears form around me like body shields, and they keep me warm. You know what? That actually sounds pretty believable. You are a likable person, and I'm sure that extends to bears as well, and I'm sure that you have an entire team of friendly bears protecting you in the Alaskan winters. Now, as much as I want to keep talking about bears, because that is an interesting topic, surprisingly, this is actually a conversation about business, about the furniture business. So how did you get into building furniture? And how did you get into using epoxy as your technique of choice? What's interesting is that most people think that I started actually with epoxy, whereas the epoxy was a very, very much a late addition. I think I started how most uh, garage builders did with pallet furniture, which I just added art and color to, and that quickly moved into, at the time, the very, I think it's still as popular, the very shabby chic, farmhouse everything is you paint everything and then you spend two days sanding it down to make it look like it's it's old i was doing that but then i started adding um, paintings and stuff to it vintage flowers really actually complex designs one of my most favorite was a family was getting ready to adopt so they brought me their son's uh wubby his his uh 
his doll that he had and I actually painted that doll it was a cheetah onto a dresser and they wanted to just make sure that he was feeling very very special so they presented this this gift to him and then from there I started building uh, beds and whatnot and this ties in with how I started with epoxy a client came to me and she said you know I, I, I see these lifelike paintings that you're doing and I want a queen headboard it needs to be about uh, nine feet tall I want a whale on it and I want the whale and it to look like it was in a galaxy that was all she gave me for direction so I started doing some research on ways to really make a galaxy and I was seeing these artists do galaxies on these you know just a normal canvas eight by ten canvas using epoxy and that opened my eyes so that project was my my first break into epoxy and this whale was about five foot long and from there it was like oh this stuff is pretty cool I can mix it with paint I can mix it with woodworking let's see what else we can do you are known nowadays as someone whose name is synonymous with epoxy some might even say the queen of epoxy your artistic control of the material has been recognized worldwide. And so, like for all masters in a field, it's no surprise that people come to you for that very specific reason, epoxy furniture. And that's your business, it's, it's how you make money. But epoxy furniture must be really hard to price because it functions the same as any wood or metal piece of furniture. But unlike both of those materials, people have the sense that epoxy is easy. Well. I guess not easy, maybe not easy, but more understandable than say something like welding. They see it as something that they could do themselves. You just pour epoxy on wood, there it's done. And so that, that idea must be reflected in their mind when they think about the price that they want to pay. We know truthfully that it takes years and years to understand and perfect this art, but it's hard to explain that. How do you price your pieces knowing that there is this mindset out there? So when you're doing epoxy furniture, it starts getting tricky because in my experience and people that I've helped, when they're bidding these pieces, oftentimes the client, unless they've already previously bought a piece from you, is just sometimes flabbergasted at the price. Like this, I could get a walnut table for $5,000, but now you're telling me a walnut table that you're going to pour a strife of epoxy down is $10,000? What do you mean? You know, you just slap the two slabs down and you dump it in there and you let it go. And it can be very frustrating, especially for people who are working to establish themselves because you hit that wall a lot of, well, I'm just going to do it myself because I can buy epoxy down at the big box store for cheaper. And what they're looking at down at these stores is garage floor epoxy, traditionally. And one, you shouldn't use that for a table. But until people become more educated that epoxy, on average, is anywhere from 120 to up to $200 per gallon, depending on the type of epoxy that you're using. And then uh, you have clients who are coming to you wanting a table that will take 10 gallons of epoxy and 
having to almost justify your prices, which is something that I don't do. You either want my work or you don't. I've decided to take a hard line on that because it gets tiring spending a week, two weeks going back and forth with a client trying to explain something that unless they're a builder and unless they go and actually take the time to do their research, they're just not going to get. Now, I would have to say that most clients are not rude. They're uneducated. And there's a very big difference between a rude client and an uneducated client. So trying to make sure that you yourself as the builder is in that very first email, educating your client that epoxy is not cheap. From the mold that you have to build to contain it, to the actual pour, and then the time that it takes up in your shop. A lot of people don't account for that. They don't take into account that if you're building a 20-foot table, that table is going to be taking up valuable shop space for at least a couple of weeks. And you might need to navigate that cost around other projects that you cannot do in that time frame. You are talking about self-worth as a business, self-worth in yourself as the business owner, which is a topic that gets mentioned a lot on this show. And it's something that I'm always happy when it's brought up because it's an idea that business owners always need to remember. Yes, the client is paying your salary, so to speak, but that doesn't mean that they're always right. That you can't say no if the project isn't right for you. And that you should say no if the project isn't right for you. You should always be respectful to your clients no matter what. But that doesn't mean that you have to bow to them. It's a hard lesson to learn for anyone. How did you get to the point in your career that you started to understand this idea and apply it to your business? I I still think even now it's still very, very hard. And, you know, there's no way that we can tap a dance tap dance around it excuse me we are all adjusting to the changes that COVID brought into our lives so for builders it's been both a blessing and a curse because now now we have a lot of people who have been at home and they realize suddenly how expensive it is to do these things so that's the blessing part is that maybe you need less justification on a job but then at the flip side of that and and this will tie into your answering your question on turning down a jobs here we also have a huge influx in people who are building their own items so there might be a little bit less work so it makes it hard in your head to say no to a job especially if times are a little bit lean And you're having to decide, okay, I'm only going to maybe make a 10% profit on this job versus maybe in 2019, I would have made a 40% profit on this job. So I think learning to say no, you also have to learn how to really take a thousand mile view of the situation and then a one mile view of the situation. And what I mean by that is at a thousand miles, okay, I'm gonna make a 20% profit on this job, run through those scenarios. Then when you get down to the one mile view, you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna make a 20% profit on this job, but is the client a good fit for me? Am I gonna waste that 20% going back and forth with 1500 emails a day because they're making changes? 
Or is this a client that's going to be super hands-off and let me really capture all of the creative freedom I need to encompass that 20%? So as much as I would like to say that saying no is an easy blanket, like, okay, I'm only going to make 10% on this job. Nope, I'm not going to bother with it. It's not always true because that 10% can be some of the most valuable 10% that you gain in a repeat client or saving yourself a headache that not only eats up that 10%, but then eats into a negative 10% profit. So saying no is hard. Saying no is still very, very hard to this day. And whether you're at the beginning of your journey or the middle, or maybe you're getting close to retiring, you have to be able to look at things from a far away distance and then really niche down to a tight view of what's going to be gained and what's going to be lost. You brought up the back and forth relationship with clients, and I'm sure anyone who's ever built a piece of furniture knows that feeling, that feeling of getting the the mid project or even worse, the last minute email with a change order to the piece of furniture that you're building. It's never good. Uh, but I have to imagine for epoxy, it's it's even worse because once it's poured, that is it. You can't change it, can't re-pour it, or use it for another project. All that you just poured is basically unusable. What types of contracts do you have with clients so you don't run into these issues? Or if you do run into them, you're able to deal with them without it taking all of your profit? You know how, well, maybe for most people, for me, I tend to have to take a, a couple of lessons learned before I actually implement them. and. A contract is imperative. I wish somebody had told me this when I, probably the first thing I wish I would have learned. I had one client, I had already made a bunch of stuff for him and this was before I was doing epoxy. And on the way to collect the item I had built for him, it was a very, very eclectic item. It was a tie-dyed Jimi Hendrix style elephant full tusks coffee table. And uh, on the way to pick it up, his girlfriend decided that that was not going in their space. So he decided not to show up. Um, took me a week to get an answer out of him. From that point on, I started my contract, which includes a 50% non-refundable deposit, period. That was one of the best things I ever did because I did run into some problems down the road with Again, tying into epoxy work, clients wanting to just kind of change colors and me trying to explain, I can't just change the color of a poured epoxy table. So we have to start from scratch. So having a legal binding contract that they sign off on before you move even past the next set of email is imperative. My contracts now have things that are specific to me. Whereas if you want to change your epoxy color, we can, but it is a change order and that change order will incur this. And then also making sure that things that are maybe more specific to your environment here would shifts a lot. And again, it takes one client to learn a lesson. I had a client that ordered a very large um, epoxy countertop and they then stored it for almost two months upright against a wall in a closed room in a 
very coastal, high humidity, high fluctuation temperature location. When they went to install it, as you would suspect, it was bowed and they wanted me to replace it. So unfortunately now my contracts also include stuff like not responsible for improper storage, not responsible for warping. And it makes you look really hard when somebody is first looking at your contract, they're like, oh my goodness, why do I have to sign off on this? What has happened? But you really need to protect yourself because when you have a, somebody come back to you and be like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you to court. Those are scary words for anybody. I mean, maybe not a lawyer, but for builders, those are scary words. So it's much better to just have a contract in place at the get-go. So you never have to hear those scary words. Or if you hear those scary words, you can sleep a little bit easier at night knowing, okay, I had those things in a contract. They signed that contract. It's a legal binding document. They were aware of the risks. They were aware that they probably didn't do something right. So they're just blowing off steam, but I'm not going to lose my business because of somebody else's error. You want it to be not your, I don't want to say problem because it's not the correct term because it is your problem. It is your business, but I like being able to sleep at night knowing I had a contract. It's their, their mistake is not my responsibility, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You learn as you go. And the goal is to not make the same mistakes a second time. That fool me once scenario is something that you always have to keep in mind. Focusing back on what you're actually making day to day in your shop. You don't need to go to business school to know that the goal of starting a furniture company is to make money with that business. You start a furniture company to make money building furniture. That's the reason you have a furniture company. But that doesn't always mean you can't make money in different ways. Different ways that still complement your main goal. You make smaller items as well, uh, gift items, household items for supplemental income. How did you start doing that and why did you decide to go from just making furniture down the path of making smaller items as well? I recognized pretty early on that you cannot have only one means of making an income. You always have to be able to pivot your business. Now, I went from in 2019 doing only custom builds and being very overwhelmed because I was starting to ramp up my, my teaching to 2020. My plan was to only build items that I wanted to build. And then if people wanted them, they could purchase them and focus heavily on the teaching aspect. Of course, 2020 changed a lot of those dynamics. So in order to pivot my business, I really started introducing smaller, I, I refer to them as grab and go items. And it's a great way to think of them as a side dishes to your business. You know, you, you got your, your steak, your meat and potatoes, which is your, probably, you know, your staple item. But everybody loves a good side dish. Everybody loves a good dessert. So think about the things that can be those items for you is a great way to, you know, maybe it's your vacation money. Maybe it's the money that you're saving for a new tool. So when you're deciding on, a small item to add. Think of something that complements. So 
I make the cutting boards that have one or two little salmon on it and a little river. Those are great for people who are maybe waffling on whether they want to purchase a table, but they can easily purchase a $55 cutting board. Then even going smaller, like right now, I'm using my laser to make large tables, but I'm also using the scrap wood from that to make keychains that are six, seven bucks. So my my mom always told me that, you know, a penny, a hundred pennies make a buck, right? We learned that as kids. Somebody recently actually told me that it's a lot easier to make a million dollars a million ways than it is to make a million dollars one way. And it really stuck with me that that thought process that if I'm selling 10 cutting boards at 50 bucks, you know, I got $500 now versus maybe somebody doesn't want to spend $500 on a wall art piece. It's a little bit more hustle, but it tends to add up a little bit quicker. Anyone who knows you knows that you are all about community building. You are an uplifting person and you're always trying to bring good people around you to expand that community. That's on the personal side, but it also rings true on your business side as well. And I can't help but feel that your location is a big reason for that. Alaska is a gigantic place, but at the same time, it is a smaller market and you want to sell worldwide. So you've had to build your business community to support that goal. Can you share a little about how you've worked on growing your community, as well as how you've used that community as a platform, not just to connect with people on the personal level, but as a form of advertising for your work? I think particularly being in Alaska has forced my hand to learn how to be a good marketing agency on my own. Not only are we basically treated like the completely rejected kid up here, and also, it's it's hard to ship from here. Just not it's not actually physically hard to ship from here. It's hard to get companies to ship from here and to here without such a high high cost. Community is so incredibly important, and I think that people kind of tend to forget that you are the first line in your brand. A lot of times, people are not buying your products; they're buying the story behind the product. They're buying a family supper that they see sitting around that table that you're designing. They see sitting there looking at the piece of wall art that you created and telling stories about it. We get a little hyper-focused on the build that we're doing instead of the story behind the build. So when you're doing your marketing, the best thing that you can do is, is tell your story. Make your pieces relatable. And, and I don't mean that in a pitch way, and it's it's kind of hard to describe because you're selling a piece of yourself. That's what makes you different from people who go down and they're just like, well, I'm just going to buy a piece of Ikea furniture if I want to have a table. Those people may end up being your client, but initially they're not, they're not going to be because they're mindset is I'm just going to go buy Ikea furniture and if it breaks, it breaks. Where somebody who's buying a table that you've spent 100 hours designing and then you're going to spend another couple hundred hours building, those are people who are looking for a story. 
So when you're marketing, market your story, market who you are, market the reason why that you're building these things. And you will find that your clientele entirely shifts. Those are the people that you want to bring into community because those are also the people who are going to tell their friends, oh, I bought this from this artist and I bought this because I felt such a connection with the river or the colors or whatever your particular trademark is. That's what they're purchasing. And it is hard to kind of be up here and have this big gigantic state and this very limited market pitch to people in the lower 48 why they should buy from you and in addition also pay more for shipping. You really got to think outside the box and set yourself apart and one of the biggest things that I've said to people is embrace your weird. Like everybody says that like I just feel weird and I feel like my work isn't good enough or why should they buy from me? And those are exactly the reasons and exactly the things that you should be pitching because if you think that your style is weird or not good enough or not different enough, write down what you think those are and then capitalize on them because those are going to be the things that make you stand out. You own your own business and you have for a while now. And you are also a supporter of people who want to start something on their own. But you have also gone through the struggles of having your own business. And you know how hard it is to start something for yourself. And you also know how scary it is. That there are a lot of reasons people are scared to take that jump. One of the main ones that comes up a lot, unfortunately, is health insurance. And it's sad because it seems like something that should not come between an artist and them having a chance to sell their work, but that's just the world that we live in. You are also outspoken about your own health and the health concerns that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. So health insurance is something that I, I imagine is at the forefront of your mind. How did you deal with and continue to deal with that jump into working for yourself and having to deal with all that comes from living outside of the standard corporate world. You have to be comfortable with hearing the word no, but you have to be more comfortable with the mindset that I can find a way around this. Not only do I have to deal with my health issues, but I deal with the health issues that I managed to pass down to my youngest daughter. And the way that I have found is best to cope with that does tie in with pricing your market. Um, I'm not only pricing for my materials and bidding based on my materials and my time, but I'm also bidding based on what I know I need to have a thriving business. And at first, when I started my business, yeah, I was selling, selling low, but selling a lot. When you start transitioning and building that client base and you start selling at your worth because you set your value, nobody else in this world set your value besides yourself. People will pay. I mean, I know we all joke about the duct tape banana to the wall for that art installation, but look at how much that sold for because there are people out there who will pay you for your work. So you have to be able to think creatively not only in your your immediate business spectrum but also in your life spectrum 
what things are you willing to not have in order to have that business? Now, things that I don't often show is the fact that the drill set that I'm using is the same drill set that I brought off of Craigslist four years ago, right? These are old, huge drills. They're not these small, compact ones. The battery dies all the time. They're covered in paint and dings. But I have chose to continue to use those things until they die in order to turn money into my health costs. Sure, I have some big fancy equipment, but it's come with a trade. I have a shop, but I have a gravel pit that I live on because I've decided to forego landscaping for right now. So there's always a balance and you have to think about what you're willing to give up in order to think about what you're willing to get. And we often think that we have to have it all. I got to have a fancy truck. I need to have a fancy shop. I need to have fancy tooling. I need to go on multiple vacations. I need to have a very specific brand of food in my pantry. If you're not willing to give up some of those items and funnel that money into what I would call my core items, then you're you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to have a business on your own. So if I don't have fancy drills, but I'm able to pay for health insurance, if I'm not able to have a glorious yard that I can go out there and roll around in the grass in, but I'm able to have the foods and items that make my body function and like my IV treatments, for instance, then so be it. So the mentality that you got to have it all or you can, you don't have anything, you have to get, you have to get that out of your mind, like with equipment, because then you'll just, you'll be bankrupt and you wonder why your business failed. You are an inspiration to so many people, both in business and in life. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. You are one of those people who really put themselves into their business. And truthfully, I don't think that you would have been as successful as you have been without putting your personal life into your business. People just respond to you as a person. Yes, your work is masterful and is created with skills that few possess. There's no denying that. But people are also responding to your story and who you are as a human being. At this point, I usually like to ask business owners about business advice that they can share with people who are trying to follow and have their own successful business. But since your business and your personal life are so intertwined, let's talk about both. Let's talk about business advice and life advice. Okay, shoot, I'm ready. Well, I guess that that was the question. What is some business and life advice that you could share? Oh, that was a question? Okay. <laughs> See, so your life advice is pay attention to the questions. How about we start with that? Um, <laughs> so let's do business first. Again, you have to know your worth and it's hard and it's scary. And I have moments where I've I've worked up a bid and I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is this is so, I'm saying to myself, this is so expensive. This is I just I need to just shave a couple hundred dollars off. But I always, for the last two years, refer back to this book. It's it's a book by uh, an author named Chris Voss. Never split the difference. 
And he was a world-renowned hostage negotiator. And so I'm not a big audiobook fan, but the, this, they, he, he reads this book like you're inside a Jason Bourne movie, right? So it makes learning to negotiate business deals actually rather exciting. You're like, wait, what happens next? Um, and through that, I learned set your price and then figure out how to negotiate from there. And when it comes down to it, there is no negotiating. This is your price. You need to hit that send button on the email. You need to speak firmly to that client that this is my price. With that, you will build confidence and that confidence will just seep from you. And people will start to take notice of that. And it, it draws them to you. I have a thing that I always say to myself, what you express is what you manifest. If you express in your head and to those around you that, oh, I'm just not sure if I'm worth it. I'm just not sure if I'm going to get that bid. You know, all of those, those things, that is what's going to happen. But if you say, you know what, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to get this bid, you will start to see that happening. And that becomes a confidence booster. And the more you build that in your business, the more you will attract those kind of clientele you will feel it your clothes you know so to speak they fit different and it's not a sense of arrogance we live in such a strange world that people think that if you're confident you're being arrogant i'm sure some people are but that's not what you're doing you're being confident and you're helping instill in those people who are around you and who are looking up to you particularly your children to be confident you don't have to be rude but you can walk into a room and you can command it. And at the same time, you can also be scared as hell on the inside and shaken like a leaf. The more you work through that in your business and now tying into your personal life, you will see that you start to attract that vibe, that aura about you. And it just helps translate. Doesn't mean you're not scared. Does not mean that you're not scared. It just means that what you are expressing is what you're manifesting and then when we move into kind of personal goals i i am very much frustrated with this culture that thinks that if you express any sort of um, personal weakness now i mean now i'm strictly talking about um you know unhappy days we we suddenly cannot talk about the fact that maybe i spent all day crying or Maybe I'm feeling very tired and overwhelmed with the world, but hey, you know what? You got to put on that positive face and don't let the world see that you're sad. I think that's a very different approach than confidence. I am confident in myself, but I'm also confident that I have bad days. And if we try to push those bad days completely aside and pretend that they never happen, we are just building up this basically molehill that's one day going to turn into a mountain that's going to crumble because the foundation isn't good. So by acknowledging I had a bad day, but maybe tomorrow instead of laying in bed crying all day, I'm going to sit up in bed and I'm going to write in my journal. I'm going to draw some designs down. We never ever have been taught to, in this, this kind of new world where positivity is key, that that right there 
was a positive step. If I sat up and wrote down an idea in a journal, I did something productive. Maybe the next day I get out of bed and I go make myself a cup of coffee and some breakfast and I sit down and I look at that journal. I have now made tremendous strides and we don't revel in the little things anymore. You got to either get out of bed, do 15 million tasks in one day. You got to go out there and you got to just slay the day. You got to kill it. No, no, you don't. You actually just have to get out of bed, take a shower, and you have done something tremendous in that day. And by kind of shaming folks that need to take a break, we are just continuing to make them feel like they're not good enough instead of patting them on the back for the one thing that maybe for them was crazy hard. So I guess my big, big takeaway is if you manage to write down your idea on a napkin, you achieve something that day. If the next day you manage to take that napkin and pin it to a board, you've achieved something great. So own those small things and recognize that they are important and that you are important and they will start to build the foundation for that mountain that you're going to climb instead of making just this thing that's going to crumble when you finally feel like you got to the top. Jess, thank you. Thank you for sitting down with me today. Thank you for sharing your story, your knowledge, your inspiration. You are one of the lucky few who shines as a creator, business owner, and as a person. I truly appreciate you sharing your time. Well, I greatly appreciate being here. And Ethan, you are one of my most favorite folks. Well, that is very nice. Thank you so much. And the feeling is definitely mutual. And I wish you the best of luck in any and everything you do in the future. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan. And I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.